This audio is from King's Cross Church in Independence, Missouri. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit kingscrosskc.com. Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, and that can be found on page 887 in your pew Bibles. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Oh man, pulpit's a little taller now. Um, It's really fun to look out and see a mix of pure Missourians here. We've got like people who've committed to fall, like myself with their plaid, and then some who are truly like, we're the show me state, like it's gotta be frosty before I wear plaid, you know? Just come on, give yourself to it, guys. It's good to be here. My name's Will Turner, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Cross, and we are continuing in John. And if you were here last week, you may have even noticed Uh, there's a little bit of crossover in the text, and that's intentional. If we want to do the text justice, we need to take our time, savor, make our way through it uh, at the pace that the Lord would have us make our way through it. And so um, if you notice that, I think this passage is, is interesting because it's one of the most unique phrases within it in the entire New Testament, a phrase that we often uh, flip around for ourselves. So many of you have been told or have said, like, I just need to have more faith in God. I need to have faith in Jesus. I need to trust him, right? We say that all the time, right? Yes, we say that all the time, hopefully. But in this passage, we see a different phrase used. We see people who were believing in Jesus on one hand, and then it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. That's freaky to me. It should be to you, right? That's something that in me causes an unsettledness that's like, wait, Jesus didn't trust himself to people because he saw what was in people. That is a terrifying phrase. And so I want you to be hung up with that tension as we work our way through this passage with these questions. Why did he not entrust himself to those people? Why did he not entrust himself to the people who were, as the Bible says, believing in him? And why then would he entrust himself to us later? And then finally, we'll end with some practical uh, ways that we can trust in Jesus when we're struggling with doubt as the people in this passage are struggling with doubt. 
And so I wanted to give you, if you've not been around, I wanted to catch you up into the narrative, into the story. We've seen John 1. John has been giving us this massive intro, this prologue into what he's going to do. And he's been saying, hey, from the very beginning of time, Jesus has been. He's been since before time existed, before the earth was formed, he was. And that he is the light and the life. And everything that I'm going to tell you in my book is that so that you can believe, that you can see that he is the light, that he is the life, and that you would believe in him. Everything I'm doing is geared and aimed in that direction. And then we begin the chronology of miracles. And as you'll see through John, this is a spoiler, like the, the miracles start off at like this local, like family level. We're hanging out at weddings, right? And then they, they uh, ramp up in magnitude until we eventually see the resurrection. That's what he does. It's this crazy thing. It's like, this is, you know, we're warming you up to Jesus's power here. And by the end, you're just knocked on your back by it. That's what John does. And so we have this first miracle a few weeks ago at the wedding of Cana. We have a family who's just throwing a party. Jesus and his disciples are just hanging out together. I, I just, it's humorous to me to think of like being a disciple here. You're a pretty new convert to this whole movement, this thing. And you go to a wedding with Jesus and you're like, man, this guy's awesome. He is so much fun. We're out here. Uh, if you watch The Chosen, they do a good job of like, Jesus is actually like dancing in the wedding. And it's like the Baptists get real scared about that. But he's out there and he's dancing. And then... They're, they're running out of wine, and it's about to be this big shameful thing, and his mom's like, Jesus, you've got to do what you can do, and he's like, it's not my time, woman, right? And, but we know that's not what he was saying, the way we say woman, right? And, but, he, but he says that, and then he performs this miracle, and all of a sudden, we have the best wine at this wedding, and it's this amazing party, and Jesus' disciples have got to be like, this is the best guy ever. He's, we're, we, we followed him for a few minutes, and he's turning water into wine at weddings. Like, what a fun thing. And then last week, we see Jesus show up in Capernaum, his base, and he goes into the temple and he sees the religious leaders taking advantage of so many people. And I can only imagine, like, we, we know that they were selling doves, they were, they were overcharging for sacrifices, right? They were doing all of this stuff to take advantage of a, uh, a people in a place that was reserved for Gentiles to come into worship. And Jesus sees this and he's furious. And I, I can just imagine, and this, this is just me, this is not in the scripture, it's just me, like, trying to get myself into the passage. Like, the disciples might have been in line for a sacrifice or something. Like, I, I better get a dove, I'm at the temple, and he's, they're just standing in line, and all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, with a whip, with a nine, whip of nine tails, and he says he drove them like cattle. And we can debate on this whether or not you think this. I've driven cattle, and you hit them. I think Jesus was hitting people. He's like, you're just in line as a disciple, and you see Jesus come storming across the temple grounds, just whipping people, flipping tables, furious about what's going on. Talk about like a 180 from the wedding party, right? You're just like, who is this guy? Should we be following him? What is happening? Like, I've barely been allowed to be in the temple because I've been fishing my whole time. And now we see this guy just, I'm finally in here and he's flipping tables and he's furious. It had to be a storm of emotions for those who were following him. And then in that context, after, this is where we zoom in today, it's the aftermath of Jesus coming into that temple. We see a conversation between those who were the supposed religious leaders of the day, the ones who know better the ones who have allowed what has happened to happen and they have this conversation with Jesus and that's where we see something magnificent happen. We see in this passage a picture of Jesus both condemning evil, condemning sin, 
but also painting a picture of the gospel that would be to come. And we see right here that Jesus sees through the facade that man tries to throw up and he presents them with himself. It's an amazing passage. Let's pray and jump in. Father, thank you so much um, for your word. Thank you for, um, thank you for narratives in scripture. Thank you for storytelling. That we can see the humanness of disciples, the humanness of Jesus. The tensions that we feel in conversations. Thank you that you answer our questions of doubt. You know we struggle. You know that we waver. And yet you meet us right here with your word faithfully every time. So thank you for those gifts, Lord. Bless this morning. Let your word transform our hearts, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so verse 18. The Jews approach Jesus after he's been storming through the temple, and they say, hey man, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, what are the Pharisees doing? Because one, if you're a Pharisee, and you see this guy that you maybe have heard about, maybe you don't know anything about, and he comes in and he does everything that he just did, one, you would be pretty furious, because who is this guy to come into a place where we have authority and to like kick all these people out and hit people and like why why would they just come up to him it seems like a very reserved reaction honestly if if I'm a Pharisee and I see this happening if one of you just started like punching people and kicking them out like I'm coming to stop you and I'm probably throwing you out physically right but they don't they kind of come up to Jesus and he's like but what signs are you doing these things it's because they're terrified. <laughs> they're scared, and they have good reason to be scared. You see, in the history of what's going on, Jesus isn't the first radical to show up on the scene and try to flip things around in their world. There has been zealots upon zealots who've come on. There was another guy named Jesus a few years earlier who shows up, and he tries to start a, re a rebellion against Rome, right? He's getting these zealots together. They, they rise up together, and they're going to take over the Roman Empire it's happened over and over and over. And so the Pharisees are seeing this. They're like, oh boy, we got another zealot on our hands. Like this assassin, what is this guy? Is he gonna stir up? Because what happened when the Jews got stirred up? There were consequences, right? And something bad happened to them every single time. You see, they were under the authority of the mighty hand of Rome. And every time the Jews acted up, that hammer came down hard. And so the Pharisees see Jesus acting this way and they're like, oh no, like he's gonna cause trouble, he's gonna make the Romans mad and they're gonna come after us. They're gonna come after us, they're gonna stir this up. And then they also, on the other side, they have their pride thing going on. Like this is our temple, this is our place. We have the authority. You can't tell people what they're doing is wrong. Like they're, they're, they're figuring all that out. So they are both curious and angry. I mean, you have to imagine this for a moment in, in their place. Like, we, we, it's so easy to throw stones at these guys, to throw stones at Pharisees and say, man, they are just terrible people. But if, I w if, I, if we decided that we were gonna start charging you for coffee and donuts in the basement, <laughs> we're like, you know what? These people, they, they eat those donuts way too fast. <laughs> and we could be making some money off this. And we were like, you know, we're gonna start off, we're gonna charge what Lamar's charges and we're just gonna break even. And it's like, well, that's working great. Let's pump it up a little bit. And we're like, let's triple what Lamar's is charging us for their donuts. And you guys are just, you know, the hungry little donut eaters that go down there and just devour them. It's pretty messed up, right? 
it's messed up. We can all admit. Like, you would be mad at me if you showed up next week and I was like, hey, guys, $3 a donut, $4 if you're a kid. Like, <laughs> it, it would be pretty messed up. You would be angry with me. You would be right in the same shoes as the Pharisees. But here's a problem about that, that the Pharisees never considered, and this is what I want us to be careful of in this moment, too. The Pharisees never once considered that what was happening in that courtyard was actually unjust. They never considered it. Their curiosity, their anger, their, um, their frustration with Jesus in that moment was all about what he did. They never once stopped and said, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't be selling sacrifices and taking advantage of people in the courtyard. They never went there. They were never curious about what was going on. They immediately jumped to, this is a bad guy. We must stop him. He's disrupting what should be that we've put in place here, these systems that we put in place. We've got to do this. They were never once like, ooh, he just beat those people with a whip, drove them out. Maybe like there's a reason for this. Maybe we are doing something wrong. And then Jesus answers them <laughs> and he gives this very strange picture. They're like, hey, show us by what authority, show us the sign in which you're doing these things by like, you can't just come in here and do it. By what authority are you doing them? And, and Jesus responds, and it's a weird thing. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days. The sign that Jesus offers is a statement about who he is and what is going on, and the Pharisees completely miss it. They miss it. They're still locked up in this whole building idea, like this space, this, this thing that they were doing, the system that they had put in place to take advantage of people. They were still mad about that. They were so lost in that. Jesus is giving them a symbol. He's giving them a metaphor. He's telling them in this moment, we'll find out later, a gospel picture. And they're just so frustrated. They're like, dude, you're an idiot. It's taken 46 years to build this thing. What are you talking about? Three days. Jesus is seemingly, to them, he's taunting them. You want to you wanna see a sign? Knock down the temple and see what happens. I'll build it back up. And they are so baffled by this claim, they, 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 they totally miss it. But he gives them the sign in that thing. And while they miss it, the disciples don't. He's saying, I care about this place so much. I have so much zeal, as Orion preached about last week, for my house, that if you destroy it, I will build it up in three days. There's zeal for his father's house, which was a prophetic fulfillment. And then in verse 21, we see the clarity that Jesus was saying and helps, it helps us connect to what the disciples were witnessing when they were like, oh, this is the real deal. He has zeal for his house. This is a fulfillment from prophecies in the Old Testament. It says in verse 21, we get to zoom out and see like narrator John come back into the narrative. And he says, but, but Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The point that Jesus is making has to do with the religious leader's view of the temple. He's trying to like focus them in. It's like, hey, it's not about this anymore. I'm changing things. You want a sign of the authority that I did all this stuff by? It's because I'm actually changing the very na nature of the temple itself. You, you tear this place down and I'll build it in three days. 
Because for them, the temple was the very real place where, where, the, where the presence of God was. It's where he dwelt with mankind. And the Pharisees, they knew all that intellectually. But at this, they also become okay with people, become, uh, people getting taken advantage of in the temple. So they were okay with believing that this is still the place where God's presence is manifested. It's this place where his, his presence is, and we can go in, and we can do all the rituals. They were good with that, but they were also good with taking advantage of people who were coming there to worship. Their, their whole mindset of the temple had become so messed up and convoluted and, and, and sewn into the world that it had totally washed out everything that the temple was and should have been, and Jesus is like, hey, in reality, this place is already physically, spiritually, this place is done. And he's showing them, I'm the new temple. I'm the new temple. In this moment, he's saying the manifest presence of God will no longer just be in this place, but I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. I am walking with you. You don't need to be mad about this anymore. You need to be satisfied that God has no longer, he's not behind a curtain anymore based on holiness, because you can't get in there and talk to him because you've got all kinds of sin. He's with you in the midst of your mess. He is God with them. And he's saying, go ahead and tear this temple down and see what happens. Go ahead and tear it down and see what happens. Bruce Milne writes, Jesus is looking beyond the age of temple worship to the time when worship will be offered in the Holy Spirit on the basis of the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God, who is prefigured in the Passover victims, which he just evicted from the temple. He is claiming nothing less than the reconstituting of the entire worship of God's people around his person and mission. The temple will pass into oblivion, not only because it was physically destroyed, which it was, but because it is through Jesus, it is now spiritually obsolete. Jesus' body offered up and sacrificed and raised up in power will be the new temple where God and humanity, creator and creature, meet face to face. That is the good news of what Jesus is dropping on these guys. He, he's, he's telling them, hey, listen, you're so mad about this, but only a few of you have been able to go in to be with the presence of God. That's not the case anymore. All of you will soon as a kingdom of priests, we know that Hebrews says, we'll be able to be in God's presence forever. Every single one of us. That's good news for us today. But they miss it. <laughs> they miss it because of their pride, because of their anger, because of their blindness, their hardness of heart. They miss it. The text goes on in verse 23. Um, the, the heading of this passage on this section is that Jesus knows what is in man. He's able to see through the facade of what we like to throw up. And these religious leaders were pros at it. They were pros at pretending to be the best of the best of the best of the best of the best. They were, they were great at that. And they loved to make people feel that they weren't the best of the best of the best. And so they were taking advantage of them. But Jesus saw right through their facade and he offered them a new picture, a new day. Listen to verse 23. Now when they were in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Hold on to that, that's important. They believed when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man 
For he himself knew what was inside of man. And that takes us back to the, the beginning three questions that we were, we were pondered with. Why did Jesus not entrust himself to these people who believed, who believed the text says in him, but he did not entrust himself to them because he, it says he knew what was in them. That's terrifying. People are seeing Jesus do amazing things. They're, they're believing, they're following, they're like, whoa, this guy just turned the water into wine, and, I, and we know many other miracles that he did. John just says there's, there's too many to even say the wonders that he did. And so, but people saw that, and they believed. And yet Jesus, in this moment, did not entrust himself to them. The phrase in the original language can be literally translated, he continually, which means over and over and over again, did not entrust himself to them. Why? Why? And I hope there's some tension building in your stomach, because there was when I was studying this week, there's like, uh-oh, like, he knew, he knew what was in man. He didn't entrust himself to them. But the answer lies in the text, right? He sees what's in their hearts. He sees what's in our hearts. Jesus is not fooled by what's in their hearts as Pharisees and followers. He's not fooled by any mask that you and I throw up to deceive him with. He is not tricked by any scheme of man that we can pretend to be his followers, right? And he knew, he knew in this moment that those who were following him around Jerusalem, who came from Capernaum, from the wedding and all this stuff, he knew they were only following him because he was a vending machine for miracles, that he was pumping out all kinds of amazing signs and wonders. And I mean, any of us would have been like, oh man, this guy's doing some cool stuff. We should go see what he's doing. We got to follow him around. He saw that their faith was shallow because it was solely based on doing stuff for them. It wasn't out of adoration that these people were following Jesus. It wasn't because they were like, I love him. I love him. Oh, he could have done nothing, none of those signs, but I... I love him. He's the Messiah. He's God with us. I just want to be close. I don't even care if I couldn't see him. I don't even care if I couldn't touch him. I just want to be close enough to hear his voice. But that's not why they were following him. They were following him because he was doing cool stuff. They gathered to see his tricks, not because they believed him truly to be the Lamb of God. They didn't truly believe him to be the light, the life, the Messiah, and he knew it. They knew Remember the history and context of all that's going on. They knew, or Jesus knew, that they wanted to put a crown on his head, march him up to the Roman Empire, and maybe because he can turn water into wine and he can do all these cool tricks, maybe he can shoot some fire out of his hands and bring Rome down to its knees. That's what he knew they wanted. He knew that they, they wanted him to be this political king, this, uh, this warrior, uh, military leader, and just like God brought the waves down on the Egyptians following the, the people out of Egypt, he wanted them, he wanted, they wanted Jesus to bring down waves upon the Roman Empire. But that was not God's plan. It wasn't God's plan. God's plan was greater. The victory that was coming that they couldn't even picture or imagine because they were so 
They were so entrapped in their world situation and in their suffering and in their context and all the things that were going on, they were so wrapped up in that, they forgot the prophecies and they forgot the Old Testament and the promises and all of that. They were so wrapped up in this moment. All they wanted was this military political leader. But God was here to change the spiritual foundations of this world, not the physical ones. That would come later, right? That would come later. It was one where heaven and earth would begin to be united again, like Eden. That's what he was doing here. He knew that one day, ultimately in his plan, the physical things of this world would pass away, and there would be a new heavens and a new earth, and all of the, the pain and suffering, all of that was coming, yes, but they wanted Jesus to do it right then in the wrong way. Right that moment in the wrong way, and Jesus knew that, and so he did not entrust himself to those people. He did not entrust himself to those people. The bridge between man and God was being rebuilt spiritually. And from that moment on, when Jesus died, was resurrected, from that moment on, everyone who believed would receive a new heart, a heart that would love, that would love Jesus, that would adore Jesus, that wouldn't just want stuff from him from vending machines. You see, it was impossible for those people to love him like they needed to in order to be saved. It was impossible for the Pharisees, for the disciples, for all of them to follow Jesus in the right way in order that they would be saved because they were very sinful and they kept messing up. Again, Jesus knew what was inside of them. But Jesus is like, hey, you need to be patient because what I'm going to do is going to make it possible for you to adore me. Right now, it's not. At one point, every single person in this room was an enemy of God. And there was no way for you and I to look at Jesus and say, I love you. You don't have to do a thing for me. You've already done everything. I don't need to see signs and wonders. I don't need to see tricks. I don't need to see any of that because the greatest miracle ever was that you lived, you died, and you didn't stay dead. You were resurrected. It's the greatest miracle that any of us in this room could ever experience is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For the temple to be torn down and to be rebuilt in three days. Huge. And if you're wondering this moment, which you should be, that's what the text draws you to, is like, if Jesus can see what's in me, what if I'm not really there? What if I, I, you know, I have doubts all the time. I have doubts all the time. Am I really saved? Is Jesus' work, is his sacrifice for me? Have I missed something along the way? Am I a Pharisee? Like, that's the tension you should feel in your gut right now, because that's what John wants you to but then he wants you to also refocus because, because what he does in this text is so masterful. He gives you the gospel picture. We are seeing Jesus demonstrate our salvation's plan in this picture. Look, he shows up at the temple. He's furious at sin, right? He's furious at our sin. He flips tables. He knocks it out. He kicks the sin out of the temple. He totally cleanses it. And the people around are terrified. They're like, oh man, God's wrath is pretty big, right? Hopefully you all are terrified of God's wrath. Rightfully so. If you're not, there's probably an issue in your heart. We should be terrified of God's wrath. So Jesus throws, shows up and he's, he's angry at sin and false religion. He's furious at injustice and the mishandling of his father's house. And he condemns those who have enacted such deeds. But then when he is questioned, he offers a way for salvation for all of those who would hear. 
all of those who would hear. He said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the answer to the sin and rebellion in this world. It is the way out. It is the way of repentance. It is the way of renewal. It is the way of healing. It is the way of ever, to everlasting life. It's not in the religious leaders. It's not in some building or temple. It's not in the quality of their sacrifices. The only way with, to eternity, without a doubt, 100%, completely and fully, is on the death and resurrection of Jesus that, was, that paid away for your sin to be moved out forever. The Lamb of God's sacrifice was good enough for you. It was good enough for the disciples, and it is our only way to be covered. And once again, we can be with Jesus and adore him because of that. And that's what he was trying to get them to see in this moment. Amen. He is the light shining in the darkness. He is the life for those of us who are perishing. We were reading on the way to church this morning, 2 Corinthians. We follow behind Christ in, in triumphant procession. And he, we, as Christians now in this world, we are the sweet aroma, to li, uh, the aroma of life to those who need Jesus. And for those who are rebelling, who are saying, no, I don't want that, we are the aroma of death. That's what's happening in this passage. The disciples were experiencing the light and the life in this moment. And the Pharisees were experiencing the aroma of death. To believe and not doubt our Savior is now possible. So if you're sitting there in your seat and you're, you've struggled with doubt, you're like, ah, I don't know, is this good enough? Is Jesus good enough? Am I good enough? Like, this is for you. The death and resurrection of Jesus is enough. You, your weakness can fall all over the place. You can crawl up here, barely making it here every single week, and Jesus' sacrifice is enough for you. It's enough for you. Pilgrim's Progress is a great book written by John Bunyan, and he speaks to this all in great metaphors. He's like the most on-the-nose metaphorical guy ever. Like he puts C.S. Lewis to shame when it comes to like just very obvious metaphors. But he writes this book called Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, and, and the main characters, ready? Christian and Hopeful, his buddy Hopeful, okay? They are captured by the giant despair and they are taken to the doubting castle where they are beaten and they are shown the bones of those who have never escaped the doubting castle. And one night, while sitting in their cell, they remember that they actually have a way out. They have a way out of their cell. They remember that they can, in fact, unlock the doors and escape with a key that they have always had. And it's a key called promise. It's a key called promise. The way out of doubting the castle and from the great despair for us is the same. We must remember the promises of our light and our life, our Messiah. We must remember. And so one pastor, Tony Merida and Matt Carter, they give us three practical things right here that can help us in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of your doubts. Number one, remember the resurrection. Remember the resurrection. And these, by the way, are the things that the Pharisees did not do in this moment in the temple. They didn't remember that these are the promises of God from the Old Testament. Remember the resurrection. Remember that it was prophesied that the son would come and he would die and he would, be, he would be raised again. Jesus offered the truth of the resurrection to all who would hear and so many missed it. Do not forget, church, that your God is not dead and he has made a way. And the disciples did this in Matthew 28 when they say, 
He is risen just as he said. Just as he said he would. So remember the resurrection. If you're struggling with doubt this morning, remember the resurrection. It was a real moment in history, undeniable, that there was a man who was publicly executed in front of lots of people, not just believers, lots of people, historically recorded. And three days later, people started seeing that executed guy again. He is alive. He is alive. Remember the resurrection. That's the first thing. The second thing you can do to quell your doubts is to go find Jesus in the Old Testament. The Pharisees were excellent scholars, and the one thing that they missed was this. They missed it. They were great scholars. They knew the Bible better than probably any of us in this room ever would in the Old Testament. They knew it way better than you, and they still missed it. They still missed it. But we have the grace of the Spirit in us, and so we can go to the Bible, we can study the Bible, go find him, and it's amazing what it will do to build your faith. Uh, One author writes, I don't know why God changes hearts in this way, going to the Old Testament to find Jesus. But I've seen profound growth in people's understanding, appreciation, and confidence in the gospel as they've studied the Old Testament. Reading through the Old Testament and observing how clearly it testifies of Jesus Christ, how perfectly he fulfills every prophecy and illuminates every shadow, it's like an espresso shot of faith, he says. It makes me say, wow, God so perfectly planned and prepared my redemption from the beginning. How could I do anything less than believe in Jesus with my whole heart? Go find him in the Old Testament. It's a great challenge for all of us, right? Go find him. That was what was so fun about Isaiah. It was like every week we're stuck in this pit of wrath and and just lost. And then all of a sudden we get these hopeful pictures of this Messiah, of this Messiah. It's him. It's the Lamb of God. It's Jesus, the light and the life right here that he's pointing to. So remember the resurrection. Go find Jesus in the Old Testament. And the third and final thing this morning is remember Jesus' power to transform. His power to transform. If our Savior can turn water into wine, right? If he can turn water into wine and he can take 12 dudes who were just, they were just bros. Nothing special about them. Just working their jobs, fishing, taking people's money as tax collectors. Like, they were just doing their jobs. And he took those men and created the church. And, it's the, and because of that work, we are here for that reason. Nothing special about it. He transforms so many things, but he transforms us who were dead in our sins to a light. We're alive. He did it with them. He can do it with you. Do not forget his power to transform when you're lost in your hopelessness and your despair and you think, you know what? If Jesus can see everything in me, he knows that I've been doubting. He knows that I can't escape this sin that I've just been struggling with my whole life. He knows that I I can't treat my family right. He knows that I, I continually mess up in this way and in this way and in this way and this way and this way. And I want you in that moment, in that moment of hope and despair, to hear the promises of Jesus that he will make all things new and one day those struggles will be gone. One day your tears will be dried up. They've been kept in a bottle, but one day the only tears you'll ever cry are tears of joy and happiness and sadness will be no more. One day. And that moment, hold hold fast to that hope. Hold fast to that hope. Remember the resurrection. Remember what he's done for you. Remember how he's transformed you. Remember the path that you could be on. There's no way, there is no way, there is no stinking way that I would be standing here without the transforming power of Jesus Christ in my life. There's no way. And there's no way you would be here either. 
It's beautiful. Remember the power of his transforming work. Have hope. God is at work. He will fulfill his promises. He will make this place new again. So skeptic this morning, if you're here in the room and you're like, nah, I don't, I don't know about this. Hear and see the gospel this morning. Hear and see the gospel, the promises of God, that God hates sin, that he will have justice in this world, but mercifully, he gives us a way out. And he did it through the sacrifice of his son, the destroying of the temple and the rebuilding of the temple in three days. His son who would die and and be resurrected because that stone rolled away and Jesus walked right out of there. And belief in him today means freedom for you once and for all. So if you're a skeptic in this room, my prayer is that the spirit would move as we move into the end of our service, that your, that your heart would be literally softened to hear this, this message and not miss it like the Pharisees did. Don't be caught up in, in, in whatever. Just hear the good news that God loves you and he sent his only son to die for you. And his son didn't stay dead, but he was resurrected. And now if you believe in him, you have, you have everlasting life as well. You have everlasting life as well. And believer in the room, When you're struggling with doubt, which you will, I have. When you're struggling with doubt, remember the resurrection. Pick up this book and go find Jesus in the Old Testament. Go find his whispering, the whisper, uh, whispers of him, as the Jesus Storybook Bible says. Every story whispers his name. Go find it. And remember his transforming work that you had a heart of stone at one time and he gave you a heart of flesh. He gave you a heart of flesh. Don't forget those things. He can continue to do transforming work in your life. He will sanctify you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your transforming work. Thank you for the miracle that is this room this morning. A room full of miracles. That there are people in this room who couldn't have been further from God at one point in their life. And now they're sitting here in this room and they'll stand here in a moment and they'll raise their hands and say, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. You saved me. That is a miracle. Thank you for that. God, I pray for more miracles. I pray for more. I pray that you continue to do the work that you started. That you continue to show people that things like the temple that were destroyed, they can be raised again in you. Keep showing us the truth of the gospel over and over again, God. Change lives. God, we need your power. We need your strength. We need your strong arm. Be with us. Be present with us in our doubt and in our struggles, God. Help us remember you. And let us not miss you. I think, Lord, as I get older, like that is the, the greatest fear is that I'm missing you in places. So give me eyes to see, ears to hear. Let us be a faithful people who serve you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen.